Welcome to the Next Brave Thing podcast. My name is Ella Hooper, and I believe that breakthrough is on the other side of bravery. This podcast features brave stories, emotional health, and creativity to inspire you to take your next brave step. I just wanted to jump on here and give you a bit of a heads up that we do talk about domestic violence and sexual violence in this episode. So if you have little ones and you're listening to this in the car, I just wanted to give you that heads up. We've kind of made an effort not to go into um, graphic detail, but we just wanted you to know before listening to the episode about that. But today you will hear the full story of what happened to her. Also hear a plot twist that happens in this story. So make sure you stay tuned till the end of the episode. Next week, join us for part two of the story where Kristen and I really unpack the inner workings and how she actually got healed and moved through this painful story. Um, And I'm sharing this story because I believe that when we hear someone else's testimony, it's an invitation for us to have greater healing ourselves. Um, I think a lot of people walk around with stories like this one you're going to hear today, and they feel like they have no one to share these stories with. And so by shedding light on what we talk about today, my hope is that you, um, yeah, just feel courage to reach out and talk to someone about your own story if you've gone through something similar. So enjoy the episode, guys. Welcome everyone to the Next Brave Thing podcast. I'm really excited because I have my cousin on the podcast today. Well, actually, you married my cousin, and that is Kristen Peach. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Very excited. And um, to those, I always put out to my listeners that if you have a good story or you have a topic that you want to share, please reach out to me to come onto my podcast. So I love that you reached out to me to come on the podcast because I knew you had a powerful story to bring. And so what what sort of prompted you to reach out? I was feeling this sense of I've been through so much over the last few years and I really... I'm feeling like with time and, you know, that just that hindsight perspective that you get, that I had something to say, I guess, about pain and healing and all the things. So I was wanting a space to have a dialogue about it more than just putting it out on socials or, you know, anything like that. I wanted it to be, yeah, shared in a way that would be impactful, I hope, and and bring hope to people. And I love your podcast so much and I love the way you talk about things. So, um, yeah, I was just really excited to even just talk to you about it at all, but to get to talk to you about it in this forum is awesome, really exciting. Yeah, so exciting. And um, just to give our audience um, a little bit about you, you are my cousin Jared's wife. I feel like you got married when, because we're similar age, like how many years? 13 years ago? 14 years? 16. 16 years. 16 years you've been married. Yeah. Yeah. you're like my cousin because you've always, it feels like you've always been around our <laughs> <Yeah>. family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we I got married to Jared. I was 19. So, I yeah, yeah I basically have been around the family forever. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Jared is a year older than me maybe. Is he 87? Yes, 87. yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's crazy. Yeah. And so you have three kids. How old are they? Uh, 13 is our eldest and then a 12-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. 
Amazing. Yeah. So two boys, the older two are boys and the youngest is a, a little girl, Penny. Well, I'd love us to kind of share. I mean, I first heard your story um, from my mom. Like mom calls me up and I think she told me on FaceTime. She's like, it's like a movie, Ella. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like it. (laughs) It felt like a movie. And so, um, and the reason why I am having you on the podcast, like obviously like when my mom told the story, it was like gripping. It was like, okay, what's happening next? And it was... Um, one of those stories that was like, wow, engaging. But the the thing is, like on my podcast, I don't want to have just like crazy stories on my podcast for the sake of like making people feel shocked or whatever. I actually love mm. to hear really honest, hard stories. And when there feels like an enlightenment or a sense of healing and wholeness and hope on the other side. And so that's why I was excited to have you on because I just am so inspired by the work that you did on yourself. Like, um, I think sometimes when we go through really hard things, like we feel really stuck in a rut and it kind of impacts us and we feel like we'll never shake that experience off us but you are walking mm. living proof that you can actually yeah you know, walk through something and become wiser and more grounded and more your true self um so um with that being said let's dive into the story yes (laughs) where would you like to begin um I guess probably the the best place to start would be back in 2017 2018 so I um had just started working as a nurse I just graduated my nursing course my degree and um was working in my rural community in the hospital where I live. So it's a smaller hospital. I was in the emergency department. I think there was about 10 to 15 staff that uh, worked that department, probably two to three staff on a shift at a time. So we're a small team and you would work quite closely together with each other. I was a mature age student. So I already had the two boys and I was in my mid twenties at the time. Because I just graduated, um, you're obviously really looking for the people around you who have more experience, who can support and mentor you. And part of my job was also that I had to do this transition program. So I was given a workplace mentor at the time. And that person, I was very excited because she was so much fun. And I just it so enjoyed her company. And we were getting along so well anyway. Um and she was only a couple of years older than me, but she'd already been nursing for, you know, eight, I want to say eight years, maybe 10 years at that point in time. So she had more experience, um, but we were very close in age. We became friends pretty quickly because we would work most shifts together. She was sort of delegated to me as my mentor. We were we spent a lot of time together um at work I'll say we spent a lot of time together at work through 2018 at that point in time you know I had two young kids and I was working nearly full-time in shift work so it was a huge transition for our family by like late 2018 feeling the impacts of that I was in a bit of a rough space I wasn't really enjoying work I was pretty overwhelmed a lot of the time there was things going on at home Jared and I felt a bit like ships in the night, you know, we never saw each other really. And so a lot of things in life were just coming to a head, I guess. I was really struggling. And um, this work 
colleague of mine, this friend of mine, um, Laura, we'll call her Laura, um, she she noticed that I wasn't doing so great, I think. And so she was, yeah, she offered to take me out on a picnic. So we would go and start hanging out sort of outside of work and be able to talk more about personal things. Like she could tell that I was not quite my normal peppy self. And she, yeah, she said, I'll take you on a picnic. So we started to hang out more outside of work then. So that I think was about 2018. So um, between 2017 to 2018, it was a very work only friendship. But yeah, in 2018, we started to get so you're kind of like new into nursing and then you have this mentor who you have so much fun with and family life at home is kind of overwhelming and so Mm. you know it's fun to have a friend that you know you can kind of like be easy and have fun with Mm. um how did it I can imagine like it would have created some feelings of like oh this person sees me like how did that like pursuing you outside of work how did that impact you One thing, like, I know she was really good at asking questions. She asked really good questions. And I've always been a very hard-on-my-sleeve kind of person and very much so back then. So you ask me something and I will give you the most authentic, honest, heart-deep answer. So she was quick to see that things weren't, like, I wasn't in the best space and she was very quick to ask the right questions. So I think I felt very trusting of her and I saw her as you know someone who I could go to about basically anything at work and then it started to be the person who I would also talk to about my private life too. I felt very safe with her and I felt like she had my back because she would often say little things like oh don't worry about what everyone's saying don't worry about what everyone else is saying about you like I've got your back and you think oh what are people saying about me oh okay people are saying things about me oh you've got my back and it would be this quick flip through your mind of oh gosh I I hope it's not too bad what people are saying so I quickly became she was my go-to. I don't think she was a manager at that point in time, but then somewhere in there, she got a position as one of the managers within our team. So she was like an official manager and my mentor and one of my closer friends. Yeah. And I really did really trust her and really liked her. And we had, we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. She was very sarcastic, would joke a lot, but it made you at ease. So you guys are building this friendship, building like there's, I mean, just even the art of asking questions. I feel like that's such a rare people like, Mm -hmm. most people don't actually know how to ask good questions. So I can imagine like that would have brought a lot of trust with you to feel known and heard by someone yes. just asking great questions. Um, mm. So you're building all this kind of connection point. And what? how long is this time? Like from how long? So I did start working in that department in 2017 and we'd been working together through that time, through into 2018. And then in 2018, we started hanging out outside of work and yeah. then into 2019. So we were texting a lot seeing each other with groups of other colleagues, but we were starting to hang out just just us two kind of increasingly over 2018 and into early 2019. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I will say while I was a very open book, she was a very closed book, so there wasn't a lot of 
two-way communication and I oh, I would ask questions and she would like raise her eyebrow at me like you don't ask me questions like that yeah. I, I don't know if that that comes across or yeah. makes sense but you know yeah. I just she was a very guarded person there was a bit of a joke at work that she had seven kids and a minivan and none of us knew about it because she was so private um yeah. So no one really knew much about her life outside of work. And even though we were spending time together, she was very clear that, I, I you know, she wasn't going to invite anyone to her home. She had a really separate work life and private life that she was really protective of. And she stated that and made that very clear. At the time, you know, I remember thinking that's, that's strange and, being the kind of person that I am and that I was, I feel like that was almost like a, this person has pain yeah, and I need to help them, I think was the subconscious sure. things that was going on inside of me. So I thought if someone's that private, something's obviously happened and she has trust, she doesn't trust people. And so I, I'm a trustworthy person and yeah. I'm going to help her learn to trust people. I think yeah. somewhere inside of me, that yeah. was my belief system. So yeah. I really set off right from the get-go to be ex- exceptionally trustworthy. It didn't matter what she said or did. I was like a locked vault of I'm going to prove to this girl that she can trust people. As 2019 sort of progressed, I think over maybe six months, I want to say. It took a long time for her to even start to really say much about herself. She would always say really cryptic things like, me and my friends went to Melbourne, me and my friend went to a show, me and my friend, and and she wouldn't give details and context of the humans involved. She would be very specific about, we went and saw the Book of Mormon or we went and did went out in Melbourne and that she had this community in Melbourne, which was, you know, two hours drive from where we lived. And that life was very separate from her life where we were. And um, that those two were never going to miss. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, did you ever feel like, like cheeky and want to dig a little bit or was it like a thing that you just knew you couldn't poke the bear? I knew I couldn't poke the bear. I knew like you I was like, if this relation, I really liked her. I really did. And I really was like, I want to be friends with this person. But I was like, I'm in this for the long haul. You know, she's not going to trust easily and that's okay. She's, she's private. That's totally okay. I'm not going to poke the bear. I'm not going to go digging. I'm just going to let her take her time. Um, Cause I'm not going anywhere and she's not going anywhere. We work together. Like it'll be fine. And I can recall feeling like, this sounds so weird, but I can recall feeling like excited for her thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be so nice. She's finally going to have someone she can trust. Because I recall her saying to me, you know, that she's had friends in our town, in our hospital, that she's trusted in the past with private information and it's come back to hurt her. So she's really not going to do that anymore. And I thought, oh, well, I know myself, I'm I'm trustworthy, so she can trust me. And that that she'll learn that over time, I think, was my thought processes at the time. She knew that I had, like, I'm a Christian, I have a faith base, and she knew that about me. And I recall it really early on, her saying to me, 
I'm friends with you against my better judgment. I don't like religious people and I don't like religion. And even where I live, where my house is, there's this big old church that's like down a few paddocks from my house that you can see from my kitchen. And she would come to my house and joke that the church was right there and she was going to get like burnt alive from God while looking at the church. Like she would make all the crack all these religious jokes a lot. And, you know, I was just, I just feel like, okay, like whatever, like that is ridiculous. But yeah, Yeah. like I just laugh and be like, you're, you're really silly. Yeah. So there was a lot of sarcasm, but she would say things like, I'm friends with you against my better judgment. How did that make you feel? Religious people. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Confused. I think I thought, okay, I'm doing a good job of being friends with this person because if she's friends with me, even though she usually wouldn't trust people who she yeah. finds quote unquote religious, that's the word that she would use all the time. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't like religious people either. So I was like, well, I'm glad you're not finding me to be religious. That's really yeah. good. <laughs> I think yeah. at the time I thought that's fair enough. I wouldn't, I don't really like people who are very religious either so that's not me and that's great um but yeah like she would make remarks a lot like that would sort of be a compliment with a jab somehow in there and you would be left feeling like thank you I guess you know it was a yeah you would feel weird weird is the word (laughs) that I have to describe how I felt yeah yeah and I think it's like it's so interesting because like we don't really I mean, I've been in friendships like that where you're like, mm-hmm. like you don't really know how to make sense of that. So you just kind of like move past it. You just kind of, yeah. and you believe the best. Like your heart yes. is so pure of like believing the best of people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're so compassionate because you're like, oh, you've probably gone through something hard. So, mm-hmm. you know, like this is probably why you feel a little bit sharp in that moment. Yeah. Um yes. And so, okay, so your friendship is growing and she's slowly kind of in sharing kind of cryptic information about Melbourne and going to see a show, but you never know who her actual friends are. Mm. So at what point did that, you know, it's 2019, I think, on our timeline. Mm. Um, what kind of, well, was there a moment where it kind of shifted into like, a, oh, I'm getting more, I'm getting closer, I'm getting more information? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think like at this point, I recall feeling like this, this girl knows everything about my life, every, everything I'm, I'm thinking, like a lot of what's going on for me. And it was like, I could sense she was wanting to share. That's how I felt like she wants to share her stuff with me because we talk so often and she says so many cryptic things with this expression that looks like she's desperate to be honest and open Um, but she's afraid she's afraid to be truthful because she's afraid of what that will mean and I think as time's progressing I was getting the gauge I'm like she's got something that she's afraid information she's afraid to share because she feels like that's going to change our friendship Mm. and it became clear she was referring to her friend my friend and me my friend and me all the time. And I remember thinking this friend's with her all the time. Maybe it's a housemate. And so I think I did ask her like straight out, do you live with somebody? And she said, not exactly. And then I, I, you know, I was like, okay, so it's like a partner or some, someone. And she's funny to tell me like, I, 
and just with a few things that she was saying, I thought, yeah, this this girl's this girl's a lesbian and she's uncomfortable to share that information, I think. Yeah. And so I I believe that there was a point in time where I just said to her, you know, I know, I know, right? I know that you're gay. It's okay. You can talk to me about this. Mm. And she, I, yeah, she, you know, through, oh, my gosh, how I, I thought I did a better job of hiding these things she said, but then she was like, okay, are you sure it's okay? I didn't think you'd want to be friends with me anymore. And I, and I remember just thinking, that's crazy. Of course I would like, you're literally one of my best friends. Why, like, why wouldn't I want to be friends with you? Like, talk to me. I want to know about your life. I've been here for like a year and a half waiting for you to share your life, like stories with me. Let's, let's go. Tell me, tell me everything. Who's your girlfriend? How'd you meet her? So we started to talk about um, her girlfriend and her girlfriend Holly, who she'd had for years, and she told me about Holly. I think her and Holly at this point had been together for seven or eight years, but Holly didn't live in where we lived. She lived in Melbourne. So yeah. um, Laura's community of friends were in Melbourne with Holly and she lived in our town because her family were here and she worked here because she had a nana in the town that she loved and wanted to be closer to so she had two very separate lives and she liked it that way she kept them separate that must have i mean i can have compassion for her if she you know doesn't feel like I can imagine being in a small town, they're not as open as maybe a city Mm. town with Mm. like having conversation about sexuality. And I have so much compassion for Mm. people. So it would make sense why she felt a little guarded in sharing that information. So Mm. did that kind of give you more context for like why she wasn't, you know, being as open with you? Did that kind of like put your questions at ease sort of thing? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And once she was telling me the stories around her, her relationship with Holly and the times that she had confided in people in our town previously, that she'd had a lot of rejection from people. She told me that she'd had some friends who she was friends with at the time when she first started dating Holly and they were religious, mm. quote unquote, um, and that they had not liked it. So she was very nervous to share it with me um, for the same reasons. And she hadn't come out to her family. So she had many reasons why she didn't want to talk about Holly. And and so 100%, right, as soon as I knew, I thought this is really personal and yeah. to be respected. This is somebody else's private life that they are really bravely sharing with me against yeah. all their, you know, so they've told me all their better judgment. So I felt very um, privileged to be privy to things, but also I felt the weight of responsibility of I cannot betray this friend of mine's trust. You know, she's really confided this in me and it means everything to her. So I can't, I cannot ever talk about anything that she tells me ever to anybody. Um, And even my husband, you know, I took me ages to tell him because of, I was like, 
she'll yeah. somehow know that I've told him I can't tell him um yeah so yeah I and I was that. did you tell Jared or like yeah it took a while it took a yeah. while I, th- I think poor Jared was just like what is going on and you are being so like different and not you know just being so secretive like he could tell there was secrets and I would try to say they're not my secrets it's not my secret but you know when you're married and someone's you can sense something's off and then your spouse is just saying I can't tell you it's I can't tell you I think that was really scary for him he didn't feel quite great about that yeah. Yeah, that would be so, also hard for you. Like it's there's no rule book for people on like, oh, my friends just told me something super vulnerable. There's been a ton of like pain, but then my husband knows something's up. Like that's such a confusing, mm-hmm. conflicting, like what is the right oh, yeah. thing to do? Because your marriage is obviously important, but then mm-hmm. trust with a friend, like, oh, if that makes mm-hmm. so much sense, it would have been really hard. I was really conflicted. I, I yeah, and I think in the end, yeah, there was a lot of talks with my husband who was feeling very left out. You know, at this point, her and I were texting daily or yeah. talking daily and seeing each other many work days and catching up outside of work. So a lot of my conversations, I really wasn't spending time with other friends, basically just her. Mm-hmm. Um And so I didn't have much to say to my husband because if I wasn't talking about the conversation, like what I'd been doing with her, then what was I going to talk about? So, yeah, it was pretty complex time. And so this is like getting into the end of 2019. Um, And I'm actually pregnant. I'm pregnant at this point with my third child. So um, two boys in middle primary and my daughter who I was pregnant with, at the end of 2019 and I I know like um going into Christmas time there was another girl in the workplace who also knew about Holly and we were really encouraging Laura to talk to her family about it because from what we knew about her family we were like they will be fine like you can come you can come out to your family then you can be with Holly and be there like you've been with this girl for nearly eight years and yeah you know it it might be a good thing so I remember having a lot of conversations around that leading up to Christmas and then she came out to her family at Christmas and it didn't go well and her mother was really nasty and um yeah there was like a big family falling out so at this point going into 2020 um she was feeling really low, alone and without much supports left and very much relying on me, I guess, telling I was the only person that she was really telling things to and I felt, yeah, I felt a really big weight of that responsibility of that. Yeah, yeah. And so when she would say, would she say stuff like you're the only person that knows um, all yeah. my story or whatever, how did that make you feel? I, I think I thought I must be doing a really good job at being a friend. Totally. Yeah. So I remember thinking I had like this big pull towards her right from the start. And I guess having been raised in a Christian environment that I really attributed that to 
a God thing that God was kind of talking to me, like feeling like, you know, love on this girl. She needs love. She's got pain. And so every time she would say things to me like, I'm friends with you against my better judgment. You're the only one I trust with this. I can't talk to anyone else the way I can talk to you. That would just reaffirm to me, okay, I'm on the right track here. I'm doing the right thing. I'm being a good friend. Um, and I'm loving this person well. And I think it, it made me feel probably good that, you know, that, that endorphin hit of I'm good at something. I'm good at being yeah. a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also that I, I need to keep going cause I'm on the right track. Somehow this is getting affirmed to me that this friendship yeah. right now is my, oh quote unquote ministry, which now it just makes, I don't like to hear it like that. But yeah, I think at the time that is probably how I felt about yeah. it. Totally. Yeah. Because like you're bringing comfort, compassion, non-judgment, you're creating a loving space, you're mm. being trustworthy, like mm. they're all good things. So, yeah. you know, like I, yeah, I just totally get why you would have felt that way you know so you know it's all good stuff like um especially yeah we do grow up if you grow up in the church or a church environment it's to be really loving and so that is like that would make sense that you would feel that way um so I know she's sort of like slowly opening up to you and at what point does she kind of invite you into the nature of her relationship with Holly? Yeah. Well, I guess once her, once I knew about Holly, it was sort of like floodgates open. So as once I knew about Holly, then I knew everything about her and Holly. I knew the story of how they met seven years ago, the tumultuous way in which they ended up in a relationship, all the friendship ins and outs that had happened with all their friendship dynamics in that time frame. I knew about Holly's childhood holly had been adopted she'd had a really traumatic childhood prior to her adoption at the age of three so i knew about the family she'd been adopted into is this beautiful family in torquay they were quite wealthy they had a few adopted children so like i knew a lot i knew a lot by 2019 christmas and into 2020 it was the catch-up was really quick from me knowing nothing to me knowing everything Um, and at that point in time, I definitely had been going to Laura's house. So it was sort of like once she was like, you're in this story with me, it's like, now you're in my personal life. And so the stakes felt really high then because she opened up her home to me. And even, you know, if I would mention to her at work in front of others, about her house, you know, maybe like plants. She had a lot of indoor plants. If I mentioned the indoor plants, she'd give me this look like you're betraying me. And yeah. I'd think, oh, my gosh, I forgot how private she was. Like I can't even talk about the fact that she has indoor plants. I've just got to act like mm-hmm. I know everything but I know nothing and I'm the gatekeeper. I'm her gatekeeper. And so other people would just ask general things like, what did you two get up to? And I would be really conflicted as to whether I could share that information or not. I remember kind of thinking, I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what part's going to betray the trust, what part I can share. So I knew a lot about 
her and Holly's relationship and I knew there was a lot of, like, from my perspective, I thought this is a really codependent relationship and, like, Laura would say, I don't want to be in a committed relationship and Holly really wants to get married and have children together and at this point, like, so my daughter was due in March, so, you know, we're in the summer in Australia period over Christmas. I'm very pregnant by now and I've finished working um, to go on maternity leave Um, and it's just about to be COVID. So COVID in Australia was March 2020. That's when we started to have our lockdowns and we live in Victoria, so the lockdowns were intense here. Um, I think they were the worst, the most intense in the world. That's yeah, they were, they were, yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, like with everyone, it was just a really crazy time and a really frightening time not knowing what was going to happen. Um, and because Holly lived in Melbourne, which is two hours from where we live, and COVID was ramping up and there was starting to talk, be talk about whether they would lock down different parts of you couldn't travel between the city and rural communities, So Holly moved down to live with Laura in her house and um, she could do that because she worked for a bank and she could work out of the local offices in our town of the same bank. She worked for the HR department. She could work from home. And I remember Laura saying to me, you know, she's going to use this. Holly's going to use this to, under the guise of COVID, she's going to move in and she's, we're going to be living together, like, and then we're going to be fully in this relationship that I don't really know if I want because I'm still not confidently out and it's really complicated. So there was so much complexity around the dynamic between those two that I I was really privy to all the all the information at this point around that. And, you know, you, you know, when your friends are in a messy relationship, you think, oh, this is such a mess. But, like, you know, you love your friends so you just listen and you know yeah but I hadn't I hadn't met Holly Laura was really adamant that that Holly didn't like me that she was really protective of Laura and she wouldn't let Laura was like you two wouldn't like each other anyway but she doesn't like me hanging out with you because you're religious so I'll just keep you two apart and do you think she's jealous well that's what yeah I mean like I was getting the gauge that Holly was pretty controlling and really didn't like Laura to have other people in her life. So I was more than happy. I was, I'm a very conflict avoidant person and I was more than happy to avoid that. I was like, that's fine. You keep her far away from me. I'm going to stay over here and that's fine. You can, yeah, no worries. I don't feel the desperate need to meet her. Um, and so going into, yeah, going into COVID and my baby was born, little Penny was born in March and, you know, Laura was the first person aside from my mum and, like, the, the little family text that we sent out, she was the first person that knew that I'd had Penny. She was my best friend at this point. We were very, very close. I, yeah, and then I came out of hospital into the first lockdown. So lockdown happened straight away when when Penny was born. Yeah, I know like from Holly's childhood, she obviously had a lot of childhood trauma. Mm. And Laura, and I 
you know, I knew that she'd had an eating disorder when she was a teen. Like Holly did. So this is Holly had had an eating disorder. Um, And as COVID was ramping up, Laura was confiding in me, I'm really worried about her. She's Holly's losing heaps of weight. You know, I'm watching her. She's not really eating. Um, I'm going to talk to her mom. And then there was, you know, the family were getting involved and it was really looking like the stress around COVID and that was really not doing well for Holly's mental health. So there was a big escalation there of her eating disorder coming back and she was becoming really volatile. And I was just on the other end of the phone to Laura all the time about this. So I was looking up meals full of protein for Laura to make for Holly so that Holly would have nutritious food. And yeah, it was pretty intense. And I had a newborn and two kids doing remote learning. Um, But majority of my brain space was with my friend Laura and her girlfriend, Holly, who was becoming really violent and aggressive. So there was a lot of yelling and things going on in that house and they would have fights and Laura would call me crying from her car and saying, you know, this is really frightening. I'm I'm really worried about her. She's really skinny and she's really aggressive and um, this is too much for me living here out remotely with this girl who's really mentally unstable. But, yeah, so I remember feeling the weight of being the only friend to be of a support to her. Like I remember thinking this is really heavy. Yeah. But I I've got I can do this. And so I'm going to find resources and I'm going to be the best support anyone's ever had in their entire life of going through something like this. I think internally was my subconscious thing that I thought I would yeah want to do yeah. for her. And so you mentioned violent, like did was Laura open to what like violence looks like in their relationship? Because I think it's so like to people who haven't grown up in that kind of level of violence or even people who have gone a bit, it's like hard to know what your role is as a friend, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to know, like, because you're kind of navigating it, especially if you can't invite people in as well. Like you can't really process like, what should I do in this situation? Like um, what, yeah, how did you, what were things that like made it feel like it was unsafe or violence beyond like the verbal in there? Yes. So I think there were, it must have been like the first time you could visit people in in their homes once the lockdowns had finished. So Laura came to visit. She came to meet my daughter, Penny, and she was really quiet and really, she had a hood up. She was sitting there really quietly. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, whatever's going on is worse than what you've said on the Mm -hmm. phone. And over like maybe one to two hours being like, you can tell me what's happening, you know, like talk to me. I'm right here. Just talk to me. And she confided in me that the previous night um, Holly had been being really nasty verbally and had wanted to have sexual intimacy and that Laura hadn't wanted to and Holly wouldn't take no for an answer and basically 
forced her and she felt like she didn't have a voice and couldn't say no. And I remember thinking that's, like, I I think I said at the time, you know what that's called, don't you? You know what that's called, don't you? And she said, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear that. And I, and I said, that's okay. That's okay. Like I'm here. It's okay. And then she went home and I jumped online and was like, how to support a friend going through domestic violence, how to support a friend going through sexual violence, how like, and just started reading all these resources. Cause I thought I'm going to need to be resourced up if I'm going to be here for this. Um, and I was worried because the I knew enough, you know, I work in emergency nursing. I know enough about um, when to make referrals because you're concerned that someone might be having a um, be going through domestic violence. And I knew a lot of the mm-hmm. escalation, how things would escalate. So I'd seen a lot of the, I'd heard a lot of the pre-escalating. So I thought, okay, this is right on right on cue, I guess, to escalate. And then when we would see each other, there would be more detail. So um, there was a time when Holly threw a coffee pot at Laura across the kitchen and it smashed on the floor and had cut her foot. Mm. And then they'd gone away over, um, I want to say Easter long weekend, but it was a long weekend. And in 2020 so it mustn't have been easter it must have been later in the year and um holly had held laura like against a wall in the kitchen and like abused her right into her face so things were really escalating and you know my friend who had always been lively was Mm. not lively anymore she was really looking really flat and sad and she would come to my house and just sit there for hours. Was wor- I was worried. I was really worried. <laughs> worried yeah. is another same when I was frightened. Yeah. It's scary. Like, and even like, because COVID was scary in itself. Like, there was mm. so much like fear around what is the state of the world, like mm. in COVID anyway. So, also, you would have been experiencing your own like things around COVID and then I know a lot of people like there was a lot of abuse stories that came out from that time mm. because you're alone with the same person a lot yes. Yes. so that makes so much sense that you're seeing your friend like lose who she is like because mm. that. yeah that tell me yeah, and, yeah go ahead I was just gonna say like it you know it it all was so clear what was happening I guess given Holly's history yeah. And her trauma in her childhood and her and COVID, I knew that people's mental health was really being impacted by being isolated during COVID. So I had so much compassion for Holly and what she was going through and so much fear for Laura being in that home with her, uh, isolated from everyone. Um, and, you know, it was on my mind at this point, it was on my mind 24-7. I wasn't thinking about much else. And I was really like, I'm here if you need me, like, come anytime. And I know there was a period of time there where Laura was living in her car um, rather than going home. They'd had a big blow up. It had been really violent. There was a lot of sexual violence happening as it was escalating because that was, I think, where Holly was feeling really powerful that she could 
get her needs met that way and Laura was feeling like she couldn't say no or use a voice if she was feeling really frightened and um, Laura called it forceful sex. So I think there was, you know, she was really graphically explaining to me the ways that Holly was wanting to have intimacy was quite rough and painful and so she was really trying to avoid that as much as she could and in the end it got really scary so she was she like ran away and was living in her car for about 10 days and that whole time every night I would be like just stay here and and she'd come in the morning and I'd like have a like have towels out for her to have a shower. I'd be like, have a shower. And I'd make her lunch and dinner. And I'd like, you know, we tried to hide her keys so that she would just stay and sleep in the bed. Cause I was like, dude, you've got to work tomorrow. Just stay here. I've got a spare bed. And she wouldn't stay. She just was like, I can't impose. I'm already here too much. And then she would go and sleep in her car and take photos of herself, you know, in her car with her dogs and be like, see, I'm fine. And the wind's raging outside and I'm like, oh, this girl's like, you know, but she's she was making the choice not to stay and I had to respect that, so I did. But I remember thinking, um, yeah, she's in so much danger being there. And I know that Holly's family were really heavily involved taking Holly to, because they were quite a wealthy family, they were taking her to private mental health facilities for like for people to stay that have eating disorders. So she would go away for a week or two and it would be this really nice time where I could go to Laura's house and we would hang out again and it was like I could see her kind of come back to life and then Holly was coming back and it would change and she would look really sad again and be really frightened again. So we'd go up and down and it was really scary over 2020. It was a really scary time and into 2021. So by now we're like, I think around May 2021 and I've been begging her to go to the police, begging her to go speak to people. Like there's this 1-800-RESPECT hotline that you can call and I'd been calling them, talking to her about calling them for like advice. Um, I'd been writing down all the incidences that she'd shared with me because I thought at some point this is going to need, she's going to need evidence of what's happened. So I was making sure that I remembered all the dates of all the violent incidences and things. Um, Yeah. And I know there'd been somewhere in there, there'd been a suicide thing. They just had such an intense relationship where it was like, if no one, if I can't, I don't want to not be with you. So I don't want to, like Laura had said something along the lines of, I don't want to not be with her, but I can't be with her like this. So yeah. I I was really worried about her being suicidal yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so scary. Yeah. Really yeah. scary. Yeah. Yeah. And so in May in 2021, Holly had been away for a while at a mental health place and she was coming home and Laura was, She we went on a picnic to the beach and that whole day, you know, she's just acting so strange 
And I, my spidey senses were through the roof at this point. I was like, something's really wrong. And she wouldn't tell me what. And then like I wanted, I tried to get her to just come to the police with me on your way home. We'll go there together. And she just kept saying no police. Like neighbours have called the police when she's been yelling at me and throwing things and they've come and I am never going to tell them the truth. So there's no point, you know, I just tell them everything's fine and I'll just do it again if you call them. So I felt really helpless and I was begging her to go and she just wouldn't go. Um, and she hugged me goodbye and she'd never hugged me before. And she grabbed me really tight and hugged me and said goodbye. And she was crying and she got in her car and she drove away. So she, she doesn't I, hug you. At like, this point, she was very no, no touchy. And really? I would try to, I would, I would like hug her. I'd be like, everything's going to be okay. And I'd be, give her big squeezes and she'd just stand there and not hug me back. Yeah. And I'd be like, dude, just like lean into the hug. Don't be silly. But she just was very like, I'm not a touchy feely person. I'm not affectionate. And I was like, that's fine. Whatever. Like I'm going to hug you. You need a hug today. Um, and so she drove away crying and I remember thinking something is really bad. This is really she bad. She hugs you and she doesn't normally do that and she's yeah. crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's crying when she left and Holly was due back the next day. Mm. So I had kids sport on that night and I had all these things I had to do. I had to drop them off at youth and it was a really chaotic evening. And so I did all the things I had to do and I'm trying to text her the whole time and she's not replying and then hours go by and I just didn't hear from her. And then I it would have been around 9.30 p.m., so dark already, and it's May, so it's cold, like it's getting cold and foggy and it's just, you know, the weather's a bit cold. And she texts me and, you know, along the lines of, I'm really sorry, you've been a really good friend something like that. And I just remember thinking like all my alarm bells are going off and I thought this is bad, this is really bad. Um, and I told my husband and I was crying and pacing the house just like she's going to do something stupid. She's really, really scared of Holly. And I think, yeah, it's late by now, 10, 10.30 at night. And I just jumped in my car and drove to her house and I remember thinking I'm going to be finding my friend dead and I'm going to have to do CPR. Like she's she's suicidal, she's really in a bad place. And I remember trying to make note of every street name and I had to drive the back way around like all these farm farming places to get to where she lives because I live in a farmland and so does she and through the fog and I just remember being so frightened and really heightened and thinking I'm going to get there and find her dead. And I pulled up to her house. There's no street lights. It's like a rural street. So I've got my high beams on in my car to give me some light so I can try and see the yard. And I ran around the back and there's no one. She's got a big back patio area and she wasn't there and all the house is really dark and I'm banging on the the 
like door and she's not answering and I'd been calling and calling and she hadn't been answering. So, you know, I was really worried. Um, I sort of looking around thinking, am I going to break in? Like, what am I going to do? And then she looked through the window, like she looked through the curtain and I just fell in a heap on the floor. I was sobbing. Like I was so distressed and she picked me up off the ground and was like, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. And I, was just holding on to her and just like beside myself. Like I thought, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. And she said, you weren't that off base, you know. And Mm. I was like, what do you mean? And she said, doesn't matter, never mind. Um. And so I stayed until two and I begged her to come home with me because I thought I can't leave you here alone. No, and Holly's and she coming. Just, <laughs> Holly's coming. Yeah, Holly's coming. But she reassured me Holly's coming and so is her mum and so is her sister Nick and they'll all be here and Holly, will. it'll be okay, it'll be fine. Holly won't do anything while they're here. Um, and she said a few things like, were you praying for me tonight? And I said, um, yes, yes, like nonstop, yes. And she said, okay. So very cryptic. She'd just ask these questions and then you'd be like, why? And she'd say, never mind, never mind. So you're always kind of left hanging and filling in the blanks in your own mind. And um, I just said, I remember saying, you've got to, if, if anything happens with Holly, run and ring me and I'll come and get you. And so then Saturday goes by, I don't hear a word from her. I go to bed Saturday night. I still haven't heard anything. Sunday morning I wake up and my phone has a missed call at like one in the morning from her. And I was like, like my heart just imploded and I was like, oh, no. So I'm calling her and she's not answering. I'm texting her and she's not answering. And then I was on music at church. So I had to get up and go to music and I had to take my son to Auskick, which is like this footy thing. So there was so much on that day. And eventually she calls me and says, I'm okay. She attacked me. The family were there. I heard your voice in my head saying run. And so I did. And then I rang you, but then I realized it was one. So I hung up really fast and I just drove until I felt safe and I'm in another town I don't have any pants on. I'm in a ripped T-shirt, but I'm I'm safe and her family have taken her away to Melbourne. So here I am at my son's Auskick game thinking, okay, well, she's safe. And, and she said, you know, if not for you, I think I'd be dead. You've saved me more times than you know. You know, you're the only reason I'm still here. And I just... But like by between the Friday night and then the Saturday night, by the time Monday, like Monday came around and I had to work with her, I was just a mess. Like I was a mess. I was so hypervigilant. My body was just in such high flight or flight. I wasn't able to focus. I wasn't able to concentrate. I was in tears. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And she was in the office, getting these text messages from Holly's sister, Nick, 
And she was saying, Nick's texting me. She's opened up Holly's phone. Holly's been taking videos of me, all the rapes that she's like, all the aggressive sex. She had a camera in the house and she saved them all. And Nick's watching them. And so she knows what's happening. And yeah, things were really escalating. And she, and, and Laura saying to me, you know, I'm telling her, don't watch the videos. You like, you don't need to relive these horrible things that have happened. Please don't watch them. And I was just feeling like, I was, the, yeah, I honestly felt like I was the only thing standing between her and all this trauma and that I was keeping her alive and I was the voice of wisdom and I was breaking under the, all the pressure and feeling completely oh. overwhelmed but not giving myself the chance to allow to feel that. I remember just thinking, Kristen, get a grip. You aren't the one going through this. She's the one going through this. You can't be so, don't be so selfish, you know. And my husband and my kids, everyone's getting so neglected because I'm spending all my time with her and yeah. running there every time something's happening. And even when I'm not with her, all I'm thinking about is, is she dead or alive for months? And could you tell Jerry um, any of this kind of like fear, he, I, did yeah, he know about yeah. suicide stuff? Did he know any of that? Yeah. yeah. He knew. He knew at this point he knew. And he was still saying to me, something's not right with this, honey. You need to have some space. You need to breathe. Like, And I was like, no, this is life or death. You don't stop and breathe. It's life or death. Like how could you be so heartless? I remember you know, thinking you know everything that's going on. I don't have time for anything else. I have to be present and ready to go for her like this is serious and eventually it'll pay off and she'll she'll be safe you know I think I really thought that I'm here for this reason God had me here for this reason so I felt very high stakes in every way possible and so you know as that time's going on and the family are involved and then there was a big blowout with Holly's family and the police got called. So down in Melbourne where Holly was with her family, Holly's sister Nick told the police everything that had happened and told Laura that that the police now know everything and they're going to come and see you. And so I like raced to Laura's house to be there with her when the police come but they never show up. And then eventually I'm like, I have to go home and cook dinner for my kids, you know, like I have to. So then I go home and then she texts me about two hours later saying, you missed them by five minutes, you know, you should have stayed a little bit longer because they did come and, you know, they want me to write a thing and do a restraining order. And so I said, oh, well, I've got all the dates of everything. Like I wrote everything down and she said, oh, well, I've got some things like you told me to write things in a calendar. So I did. And I took some photos of the injuries and things. So she came to my house and we wrote, we, we did the online AVO mm -hmm. together at my house and she had to add some extra details of things that were too graphic she didn't want me to know about them so she went home to finish it and yeah. finished it and submitted it and then there was a court hearing 
that had to be via Zoom because there was still some lockdown issues through between rural and the city and they were doing a lot of things via Zoom. So I went to her house and she went online in that she went into the study for an hour and I just sat in her like living room and she did this really sad, you know, court case with her girlfriend and they there was a restraining order and my relief was through the roof I was like oh my goodness like she is safe now but also she was a mess and so I was on suicidal watch from then I thought she's really not going to be okay she needs a lot of support so I rallied people we made meals for her and I was there cleaning her house and cooking for her and a lot of stuff happened that's just too much detail I guess to keep going but long story short holly committed suicide wow so laura was a a mess as you can imagine wow so how did you find that out like how did yeah i was out for the day with my family i was taking a day a breather with my kids and my husband and we went to the beach and i promised i wouldn't answer my phone And so I hadn't been answering my phone and then there was a text message saying something about Holly having tried to commit suicide and that she was in ICU. Yeah, from Laura. And so I went straight to Laura's house and sat with her till early hours of the morning and she was texting with Holly's family and they were saying it wasn't looking really very good. And I offered to drive her to Melbourne And she declined my offer and then drove herself there at about midnight. So 1 or 2 a.m. I think she drove, she drove to be there because she wanted, they were saying she's not going to make it. And it was really sad. And, you know, for all of what they'd been through, they had been in a relationship for 10 years at this point. So they had a lot of happy memories. And I know it's so complicated. It's really, really complicated these situations are not black and white. So I had, you know, my heart was just breaking for this precious friend of mine who'd just been through more than I could ever fathom anyone going through. And now she's going through this as well and feeling all the questions of, is this my fault? I should have done something different, you know. Mm -hmm. So the next day um, she texted me to say that Holly had, was gone and that she'd been there with her when she died wow. and she was home now. And so I went to, went to her then and just stayed with her and held her while she cried. And, you know, then you've got the funeral and all the things that go with the funeral. And that was a lot. And we cleaned up the house and, you know, she was saying, well, I just, the house just holds so many memories. So I helped her. We moved all her furniture around so that she didn't have, the memories of everything and especially the bedroom, we moved the furniture. And while we're moving the furniture, like I found knives in the drawer that Holly had had in the drawer and um, so that she could, you know, threaten Laura at any given second. So it was really scary. There was um, some needles and syringes that I found and Laura said that, that, that it had been from a suicide pact that they'd made where they were going to inject themselves with insulin and she'd taken insulin from work um, and that at the last minute she'd wow. run away 
Yeah. So I think that was maybe when she was living in her car. So there was a lot. There was so many things that happened. There was more yeah. than all of that. Yeah. It was crazy. Wow. That's so much for you to kind of walk through. And um, I can imagine just like you mentioned, it's like it's hard to acknowledge that this is affecting your life when it's all this crazy stuff is not actually happening to you. Mm. It's actually happening mm. to your friends. So it's hard to reconcile that mm. to you, you can imagine. Yeah. And I was terrible. Like I was jumping. Like if I would turn around and the cupboard door was open, even yeah. if it was me who'd opened it, I would jump like someone was standing behind me and I wasn't sleeping, not able to focus. And, you know, my whole world was just there's this horrific danger out there, this dark thing out there. And I just, I was really struggling. I was calling Lifeline, which is like a free service in Australia you can call to sort of speak to somebody just to try to talk it out because I I couldn't talk to anybody else because I had to keep it a secret. And I felt like, you know, me telling anybody was going to put her in more danger. So I didn't tell anyone at work. And the people that knew, there were people who knew about Holly and there were people who knew that Laura was going through a rough time and then there were people who knew that Holly had died but they didn't know the rest of the context. Holly's family obviously planned the funeral and um, Laura was really heavily involved. Like I remember talking to her, she was making a slideshow of all photos that she'd had of them. And it was like, she was so upset and she's right. She had to write the eulogy. And then I was, you know, I'll drive you, I'll drive you to the funeral. It's in Torquay, which is, you know, an hour away from us. And she was fainting a lot. She was under a lot of stress. So I was really worried about her passing out while she was driving. Yeah. But she just didn't want me to take her. And she's like, I have to do this. I have to do this by myself. And, you know, I'm going to be okay. And then she went to the funeral and on the way home phoned me because she'd passed out and rode her car off the road and popped a tyre. And she called me to say, I should have, I should have let you drive me. You were right. I nearly crashed. You know, that was really bad. And so I said, I'll come and get you. And she said, no, my dad's coming to get me. So there was so much that was happening that I was on the edge of feeling really involved, but not involved, if that makes sense. Um, So I knew a play, I had a play by play of the whole funeral and I knew everything that had happened at the funeral and what everyone had said and what the aunties had said and what the siblings had said and the dynamic between Laura and Holly's family, which is really complicated as you can imagine. And yeah, but I, I didn't help plan the funeral. Afterwards, she was really sad, but safe. I was just so relieved. I was like, yeah. How as horrible as it sounds, she's safe. Like she's not going to, yeah. Oh, totally. So are you like going to work while this is happening? Like are you trying to have life as usual? Is that sort of? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next? Yeah. I like I was trying to go to work and tell myself, get a grip. Everything's fine. (laughs) Everything's fine. It's over now. And still feeling I'm not okay. I remember thinking I'm not okay and still calling 
like I making a few phone calls to Lifeline and I started to get counseling. And I remember telling Laura about that and she was really unhappy. She was like, why are you talking to, you should, you know, talk to me. I didn't know you were that struggling that much. If I'd known, I wouldn't, you know, I remember her thinking, if I'd saying, if I'd known, I wouldn't have given you so much on your plate. And then I just felt so bad because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I shouldn't have let her in on that part. Like, yeah, really complex. And I was at work probably working incredibly poorly. I can imagine that I was not very good at my job at that point in time. Um, And one of the girls who knew about what was going on approached me and just said, how are you going? And I said, oh, you know, yep, I'm all right. I'm just, yep, I'm fine. (laughs) And she said, you know, it's pretty crappy. It's pretty crappy what been happening and I said absolutely it's the worst like you don't even know the half of it Laura is the most incredible brave courageous person she's I've ever met I'm just it's amazing kind of was just hovering nearby this other work colleague like she wanted to say something and I remember being like what is going on here and then there was another girl working that shift who also knew enough about this situation and she was also hovering nearby and I I was looking at them like, what are you guys doing? And then one of the girls just said to me, you you met Holly, didn't you? You met Holly, right? And I remember thinking, oh, no, no, but like I didn't, like I didn't want to. I'd said to them, oh, no, I, I didn't meet her. I never wanted to meet her. She's terrifying. She's crazy. And she hated me. Like why would I have put myself in that situation? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. You went to the funeral with Laura, didn't you? you like, you went to the funeral. Oh, my God. And I, I said, oh, no, no. Like, she didn't want me to go to the funeral. And I, I remember feeling like a part of me was starting to, like, fracture. Like, a part of my brain was starting to kind of be like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, there was a part oh, of my subconscious that yeah it it just like you know in the movies where that noise happens yes. like that yeah it was like that I just remember my whole world just like shoo, into this very moment standing here with these two girls that I work with and then they said we've just been like we looked online for the death notice for Holly and we can't find it um like do like you know, do you know her full name? And I said, yeah, I know her full name. I filled out the AVO. I know her middle name. I know her last name. I know her parents' names. I know her siblings' names. I know the family business. I know everything about her. And they just kind of were like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Like, we know, we know. And I was like, guys, like, what are you trying to say? What? They're like, we're just, we just we're just worried about you. They was they said, we're just really worried about you. Like it's been a lot and we just want to make sure you're okay and we have some questions. And I was like, I know what you're trying to say. Yes, it's real. Obviously this has been my life for 18 months intensely and like three years really because this girl's been my friend for all this time. Like, what do you mean? 
Um, and I had to work the rest of that shift with my brain just spinning of all the stories, everything that I knew about this, which was so much. And it had been entirely consuming my whole life for months. Mm-hmm. Um, but the history of their relationship, everything about them, you know, and I went home, I drove home and I recall wondering on the way home, do I bring this up to Jared who has repeatedly expressed concerns around this friend of mine or do I just pretend that that didn't happen and just keep going forward? And then I walked into the kitchen and he took one look at me and said, what is wrong? And I walked up to him and put my face on his chest and he put his arms around me and he's like, what happened? I think he thought something had happened at work, like, you know, because I work in emergency, emotional things happen. And I just, I just said, do you think she made it up? And as I said it out loud, there was a part of me that just knew. Wow. Oh my gosh. I just knew. I knew. I knew what I'd just spoken. There was a, there was truth to the words that had just come out of my mouth. Um, wow. Yeah. So obviously that, you know, he said she better effing not have. You know, he was pretty <laughs> mad. Um, <laughs> and he just, you know, he was, I think he was, ready to have his wife back, to be honest. So he just jumped on the computer and was like, tell me everything you know about Ollie, tell me everything you know, and just started to sleuth. And the first place we all go to when we're looking for people is Facebook. So we look for them on Facebook and we can't find them and we look for the rest of her family members. And I had reason, you know, I knew why she wasn't on Facebook. She's a really alternative vegan. She's not interested in the social media. She's not online. She doesn't have a smartphone. She's really, you know, I knew all the reasons. I was like, well, she won't be on there anyway. You're not going to find her anyway. And yeah. And because I knew so much about her family, it gave me a lot to go on to try to find them. And I knew where she'd worked and I knew where she'd been an inpatient and I knew where she had died and I knew where she was buried and I knew her date of birth. You know, I knew so much about her. So I loved Laura. You know, she was so, like I was in an incredibly unhealthy codependent dynamic with her, but I really cared about her too. So there was this big part of me that was like, what? is happening because this person is someone I trust very much and she cares about me very much and I care about her very much and this has to be true because if it's not true, what on earth is? And so I went for, I want to say, a week to 10 days trying to find some shred of evidence of one thing that she said because I thought, you know, maybe maybe Holly's real, but she didn't die, maybe, you know, just trying to find something. But 
everywhere we looked, every stone we overturned, there was just nothing. She never worked at the bank. No one had ever heard of her. And it just as it snowballed, the more I found out, the more it was just clear that everything that she told me wasn't true. And there was, you know, there was cancer. She'd had cancer. She'd had a sibling who died. She'd had, you know, there were so many things and all of it, none of it was able to be verified. Um, All the way down to I knew someone who knew the family and I checked in with them and she wasn't estranged from her parents and she'd been with them for all family holidays and all these things and everyone was happy and fine. Laura had when she'd been telling me all these dynamics were really awful. They hadn't been. Um, Wow. And, yeah, and it was Laura's birthday that week. So for the first time ever I didn't run to her and I was still trying to find, like I still wanted to believe that it was real and that I was just somehow really Whoa. sucky, yeah, at investigating. Yeah. And I and I didn't go to her house on her birthday and she didn't answer her phone for that whole day. And then she showed up at my mum's house really le- like late in the evening um, on her birthday and told my mum that she'd laid on Holly's grave for the whole day because she missed Holly. And my mum had said, oh, where where was that? And she said, Torquay. Um, so we had a pretty, like, clear, okay, we've ruled out everything and now she said that she's, like, laid on the grave. So if she's not, if there's no grave, it's not, like, it's really not real. And I think at this point I was in, like, I don't know if you've ever watched Mean Girls. Yeah. No, not Mean Girls, Pretty Little Liars. Have you ever seen Pretty Little Liars? I was just like, if this ends up with me and my work colleagues with a shovel at a gravesite, I'm out. Like this is not happening. And I remember just thinking, what is going on with my life? How is this? How is this real? But I was protecting myself with a lot of humour, I think, that week. Yeah. And just being really like saying things like that. Yeah. Because the reality was a yeah. very frightening. Um, and I think I somewhere inside of me I was still holding on to the fact that I was going to find the magic thing that was going to show me it was all real and this yeah. was all a really bad mistake. And I was so conflicted because. Like who makes yeah, this up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If it's made yeah. up, it's the most insane thing. And I just, yeah. your brain actually can't fathom it. No. Yeah. And I know that, like, we look for evidence of truth to not feel crazy. You know, we look for things to back up our belief systems. Yeah. And so my brain was just still on the bandwagon of, no, 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 I'm going to find the thing that's going to show us that this was none of this was lies and this is totally true and my whole life isn't going to turn upside down. Like, I think subconsciously I was just on the, I need to find the thing I wasn't trying to find her out in the lie. I was trying to find the thing that would back her up in truth, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. So so I wasn't ready to call it even though I'd been looking for 10 days and no matter what I did, I couldn't find anyone. Like everywhere I went, no one had ever heard of her before and there was no notice for births, deaths and marriages and nothing was 
it was her birthday. She'd been to, I didn't go to her on her birthday. I didn't run to her like I normally would um, to make sure that she was having an okay day. Um, and I, and she went to my mum's place really late in the day. So she didn't answer her phone for the whole day. A lot of people texted me saying, have you heard from her? How's she doing? Is she okay? We've tried to contact her. She's not answering. And I just said, I'm not sure where she is. And I just left it. And I didn't want to see her because at this point in time, I was starting to think, oh no, I can't find anything. And I was feeling really guilty for even doubting her I think still so I was really like I was like it's just like best friend 101 or friend or anyone 101 when someone tells you they're being abused you believe them yes and I still I still stand with that like I think it's important to listen when people tell you even if something feels really far-fetched yeah she she showed up at my mum's place really late in the evening on her birthday and told my mum she'd been on Holly's grave for the whole day lying there because she missed Holly so much and Holly and her always had really beautiful birthday um traditions and so being without Holly on her birthday was really painful so she went to the to the grave to be with Holly and my mum was quick enough I think I told her I think I must have told her at this point and so she'd said oh where were you and Laura had said I was in Torquay. And at this point I knew. She told me the funeral's in Torquay, but I'd done enough research to know there was no cemetery in Torquay. So I was like, okay, well, she said she's at a grave in Torquay when there can't be one there. But um, the Great Ocean Road's long and there's lots of little random towns along the Great Ocean Road with Torquay being one of them. Um, and some of those places have very small, very old cemeteries that years and years ago people got buried in. So I was still wanting to give her the benefit. And so my mum drove to Torquay during a lockdown, I might say. So she broke the law, go mum. and go drove. Mom. <laughs> go mum. And she drove to Torquay, looked around and found the next town along um Balbray I think had a little cemetery in it and she went there and there's someone mowing the lawn and they said no one's been buried here for decades there's no one been buried here for a really long time you know just another I, I was starting to I think it was starting to really hit inside me I was like this is real and the following day I was meant to work a shift with her so I was like I have to know before I see her because if I'm confused or conflicted this is going to be really complicated for my brain I think I knew enough to know if she's really done all this bringing it up is probably going to be really complicated if you're not confident that you know the truth because I was so loyal so fiercely loyal to her that I I think I almost would have self-abandoned all reason so I rang the cemetery's trust and she told me no one under the age of 80 was buried on that day and I think I had to accept that that at least is unequivocally a lie that have been told and the intense stuff surrounding the funeral itself was such a drama and so much of my time and energy yeah. 
that even if just this one thing it was made up, that's still quite a lot to make up. So, you know, this friendship isn't all it seems to be. And I had to really tell that to myself and be like, you have to stop looking and you have to just accept wow. that everything's about to change. And as I did, I think I just, yeah, my whole my whole world imploded, Ella. It just imploded. It was, yeah, really, really scary. Wow. I have chills. I'm just like, wow, the the level that Laura, like the length that Laura went to to tell this lie is just mm. insane. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. And because you would, none of us think like, yeah, like we believe the best in people. We're not thinking like, oh, they're making up this story, <laughs> like, mm. you know, so, wow, that must have felt really like the rug was literally pulled out from underneath you. Mm. That's crazy. Mm. So I think we will wrap up this episode because I think we'll continue in the next episode. We'll sort of talk about like the aftermath of you finding out but then we'll go through and what happened to Laura. But then I am excited about next episode because we'll go into your healing process and what you yeah. learned about yourself. And um, yeah, I'm excited to dive in and do that with you. So oh, same. Yeah. So thanks for sharing your story. And guys, stay tuned for next week's episode where we unpack more of yeah, the inner workings of what is happening while all of that chaos is going down. So stay tuned, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Please download, share with your friends and write a review. If you would like to book in a life coaching session with me, go to my website at www.ella-hooper.com or follow me on Instagram at Next Brave Thing Podcast.